Hello, and welcome to the May 2016 episode of the LGBT Law Notes podcast. I am Matt Skinner, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me, as always, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. First up, only weeks after Governor McCrory signed the now infamous HB2 law in North Carolina, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit has called the bathroom provisions into question by holding that the Title IX federal law requires educational institutions to allow students to use restrooms consistent with their gender identity. Can you tell us about it, Art? Yeah, this is uh, a very interesting administrative law decision. And it relates to a phenomenon that we've been reporting on now for several years, uh, dating back as far as 2010, when the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission construed Title VII's ban on sex discrimination to cover gender identity claims. Uh, Since then, other federal agencies that administer or enforce rules or statutes that ban sex discrimination have started to follow the EEOC's lead, and most prominently the U.S. Department of Education. Their Office of Civil Rights has now taken the position that Title IX of the Education Amendments Act, which bans sex discrimination by educational institutions that get federal money, which is just about all of the public ones, uh, it extends to gender identity issues. And they have, uh, in response to the case that was decided by the Fourth Circuit, they issued a written opinion that uh, transgender students at educational institutions covered by Title IX must be allowed access to restrooms consistent with their gender identity uh, unless they prefer a single-sex uh, you know, restroom that's not designated for any particular gender. So uh, this case involved Gavin Grimes, who is a student in Gloucester County, Virginia, and uh, he was... Uh, beginning the transitioning process, uh, and at the beginning of his sophomore year at the high school, he told school officials that he was transitioning. He actually had gotten a legal name change for his first name, and he would be expressing his male gender identity. So please, he said, let me use the boys' restroom. And they said, sure. I mean, the school authorities uh, initially were very supportive. uh, And things went on for a few weeks with no problem, but evidently other students told their parents about it, and parents got upset. And parents got in touch with the school board, and there were some heated meetings, and the school board finally adopted a resolution that said that uh, students must use the restroom consistent with their biological sex, or they could use a unisex restroom, which at the high school basically meant in the nurse's office. Uh, and Gavin Grimes was not willing to go along with this. Uh, so uh, he uh, ended up filing a lawsuit uh, represented by the ACLU uh, to claim that this violated his rights under Title IX to be free of sex discrimination. And the uh, federal district judge uh, was faced with a two-prong complaint because he also alleged a violation of equal protection. Uh, And the way this tends to work now is that courts focus first on the statutory claim, and if they can resolve uh, the case based on the statutory claim, they avoid making a constitutional ruling. Uh, So initially, uh, when Grimes sought a preliminary injunction so he'd be able to use the boys' restrooms while the case was pending, 
uh, District Judge Robert Dumar focused on Title IX. And he felt that Title IX was not on its face ambiguous, that neither were the regulations that had been adopted shortly after the statute was passed uh, decades ago. Uh, the, the regulations basically say that schools may maintain separate men's and women's restroom facilities as long as they're equal. Uh, it says nothing about how you deal with transgender students. That wasn't on the radar you know, several decades ago. This has just emerged as an issue in more recent years as uh, transgender people have been identifying themselves and transitioning younger and younger. This mm -hmm. was not a phenomenon we saw with teenagers uh, decades ago. So uh, the judge looked at this, Judge Dumar, and he said, uh, I don't think that the education department can construe this language in Title IX or its existing regulations to require the school to allow access, or at least I don't think for purposes of a motion for summary judgment that he's likely to succeed on the merits. So he refused to uh, uh, grant the preliminary injunction and, in fact, granted a summary judgment motion by the school to get rid of the Title IX part of the case. Uh, the constitutional equal protection question remained, uh, but that wasn't uh, addressed right away because uh, the ACLU immediately appealed Judge Dumar's summary judgment ruling and, and denial of preliminary injunction to the Fourth Circuit. So as you pointed out, in the interim, before the First Circuit decided this case, North Carolina passed HB2, uh, a law which has similar effect uh, passed in Mississippi, uh, and uh, proposals along similar lines are pending in many other jurisdictions, uh, although at least one has been vetoed at this point or refused to be signed by a governor. Uh, so the question is very important, and this is the first crack at it at the Court of Appeals level under Title IX. But interestingly, the Fourth Circuit did not treat this as a substantive appeal. They treated it as an administrative law case and said when the agency that is charged with the interpretation and enforcement of the statute takes a position, we should be very deferential, especially where the existing uh, regulations are ambiguous and where the interpretation by the agency is reasonable and is not clearly erroneous. And they decided that in this case, the Education Department's interpretation of Title IX met those requirements. So uh, the judge, in ruling to dismiss the Title IX, uh, was improperly refusing to defer to the administrative agency's ruling and the court said the case had to be remanded back. Uh, but the Court of Appeals was not willing to grant the preliminary injunction because they said that's within the discretion of the trial court. And in this case, the trial court had refused to grant the preliminary injunction because it felt there was no cause of action under Title IX. So now that the uh, Fourth Circuit has said there is a cause of action under Title IX... And one judge strongly suggested he would have granted the Yes, well, a concurring judge. Uh, there was a dissenting judge, uh, the same judge who dissented on the Fourth Circuit in the marriage equality case a few years ago, uh, who felt that there was no ambiguity whatsoever in the regulation, and therefore the court could construe the regulation as a matter of law and was not required to defer. Uh, now, there's no indication yet whether the school district is going to seek on-bank review or Supreme Court review or uh, whether they're just going to uh, concede to this. Uh, there's still the equal protection issue to litigate as well if the case isn't resolved based on Title IX. But in the meantime, this is very significant because now we have a court of appeals, at least one, that has apparently blessed 
the uh, education department's construction of Title IX, or at least said that it is entitled to deference. And this circuit is North Carolina is part of this circuit. North Carolina is in this circuit. Uh, South Carolina is in this circuit. Uh, and in South Carolina, uh, Governor Haley has already said we don't need a bathroom bill in the state. We can let local school districts work this out with the students. But the important thing is that this sends a message that uh, the transgender restroom access issue is already covered by federal law. And the EEOC, in fact, uh, and the Justice Department have already taken the position that under Title VII, the same applies. The EEOC uh, actually issued a ruling in a case involving federal employment where they have appellate jurisdiction uh, last year holding that uh, transgender federal employees are entitled to use the restrooms in federal facilities consistent with their gender identity. Uh, They've made it clear now that they're awaiting people to file complaints under Title VII in North Carolina and other states uh, if this issue comes up. And the Justice Department, uh, after we went to press on the May issue, the Justice Department sent a letter to Governor McCrory uh, giving him a very short deadline to reply saying that it looks to us like there's a potential Title VII pattern or practice case against the uh, higher education institutions in your state because the uh, president of the University of North Carolina has said she's going to comply with HB2. And if she complies with HB2, with respect to their employees, they will be in violation of Title VII. So we've got a strong uh, signal from the federal government. And so far, the legislative leaders in North Carolina have been resistant to complying. But Governor McCrory has said that he will respond to the Justice Department by its deadline. So we're all waiting to see how that one Mm -hmm. plays out. Very interesting stuff. All right, we will take a short break, and when we return, we'll discuss an important appellate court ruling in New York on parental rights. We are back discussing another in a series of rulings that follows a familiar route to find a way to get around the draconian bright line test in New York for determining someone's status as a parent after a gay couple breaks up. Can you tell us about it, Art? Yes. This is a decision by the New York Appellate Division, Second Department, which covers uh, Brooklyn and Queens and Staten Island, I believe. And and, Long Island. And Long Island, of course. And this case, in fact, arises out of Suffolk County with a detour to Arizona, of all places. So this involves a lesbian couple, former lesbian couple, Uh, identified in the opinion as Kelly S. and Farah M., but in subsequent press reports as Kelly Stiegel and Farah Martin. And they were a couple in California. Uh, They began their relationship in 2000. They registered as domestic partners in California in 2004. And shortly afterward, they asked a close friend named Andrew to donate sperm so they could have a child together. And Kelly, uh, who is now the plaintiff in the, in the litigation in New York, Kelly became pregnant and bore their first child, who was legally adopted by Farah. And that child is not the subject of this lawsuit. There's no argument that Kelly is entitled to visitation with this child. Uh, but they decided to have more children. And Andrew, again, donated sperm. They, they have three children, all of whom uh, were uh, conceived using Andrew's sperm. Uh, This time, Farah became pregnant. She gave birth in March 2007. 
uh, to one of the uh, children, and on the birth certificate, Kelly was listed as a parent, and the child was given her surname as its legal name. Uh, after the California Supreme Court ruled in favor of marriage equality in 2008, Kelly and Farah decided to get married, which they did in August, a few months before the voters passed Prop 8. Uh, and the California Supreme Court, of course, subsequently held that those marriages contracted during that window period were valid. And after the marriage, they had another child with uh, sperm donated by Andrew. Farah again became pregnant. Uh, so of their children, the first was born by Kelly, the second and third were born by Farah. And because uh, Kelly and Farah were in a California registered domestic partnership, there was no adoption uh, because uh, Kelly was presumed to be the parent under California law as a registered domestic partner. And then after the marriage, Kelly was presumed to be the parent because she was the spouse of a woman who gave birth. Uh, They subsequently moved to New York in 2012 after New York had enacted its marriage equality law. So clearly you would think their marriage would obviously be recognized in New York. But they broke up soon afterwards. Kelly moved to Arizona in the summer of 2013. The children remain in New York with Farah. Uh, no doubt that the oldest child, Kelly, can demand visitation, can you know, have the child come out and visit her. But uh, Farah was resistant about the two children born to her. And she claimed that uh, Kelly had no legal right to seek visitation with those children. She raised up the Allison D. case. She said in New York, Kelly was a legal stranger, uh, certainly at the time that the children were born, uh, because New York had not passed its Marriage Equality Act yet when the children were born. Uh, But uh, the New York uh, family court judge out in Suffolk County absolutely rejected this position. Uh, uh, Judge Poulos uh, of the uh, Deborah Poulos of the Suffolk County Family Court said, "Hold on a minute. Uh, we give comedy to uh, parental status decisions from other jurisdictions." And she pointed out that, in fact, well before New York passed its marriage equality law, the Court of Appeals had recognized the parental status based on a Vermont civil union. Uh, on the theory that uh, when the child was born, the couple was in a Vermont civil union. Even though they were New York residents, they'd gone to Vermont and and had registered as civil union partners. And therefore, since under Vermont law, uh, the non-birth parent would be considered a legal parent, New York would give comedy to that. In a decision where the court refused to overrule the Allison D. case from 1991, under which a same-sex partner was a legal stranger, it's sort of hard now to maintain the pretense of a legal stranger when, in fact, they're married. And uh, maybe they weren't married uh, under New York law at the time when these children were born. They were um, in domestic partnership relationship when the first of them was born and were married under California law when the second was born. And certainly New York's comedy standards would apply here. And uh, so Judge Poulos ruled, and so the uh, Second Department ruled in an opinion by Justice Sherry Roman. Uh, So this is just one more uh, advance in sort of normalizing the relationship of married same-sex couples and saying New York law, especially after the marriage equality law, must treat same-sex couples the same way as different-sex couples for purposes of recognizing parental rights, recognizing out-of-state marriages, 
but we've still got that last shoe to drop, and it's about to. Mm. And this, I guess, is the newsworthy point that on June 6th, New York, June 2nd, right, the New York Court of Appeals will be hearing oral argument in matter of Brooke SB versus Elizabeth ACC, in which uh, a, a fourth department decision which routinely applied Allison D. to deny standing to a non-marital same-sex partner in a custody case uh, is up for argument. And uh, it's worth pointing out that since the New York Court of Appeals last faced this issue in the case where they refused to overrule, uh, six seats on the court have turned over. And as of now, uh, a court which was uh, dominated by appointees of Governor George Pataki, a Republican, now is overwhelmingly dominated by appointees of Governor Andrew Cuomo. And so we think it is possible that the court will be receptive uh, to an overruling of the Allison D. case at this point. Uh, Not just a matter of change of membership of the court, but of the incredible evolution of the law with respect to the legal status of same-sex couples and LGBT families over the past decade or so. I mean, Allison D. is so out of step with the current statutory and case law in New York that it's hard to believe that the court would reaffirm it. And really all they're interpreting is the word parent in a statute that was passed decades ago. And the idea has been that, you know, the legislature needs to step in and clarify that they could have meant, you know, a non-biological half of a gay couple parent. Um, But there's nothing in the statute that uh, leads to the conclusion that they meant to foreclose gay parents from having standing. It's certainly open to the Court of Appeals uh, in its role of uh, definitively interpreting New York statutes to take the view that the statute should be construed in accord with modern understandings of these family relationships. And uh, certainly the, uh, the dissenting opinion by uh, Judge K in the Allison D case. I and mean, it, it was... Prescient. Well, it provides excellent arguments. Yep. Uh, and there's certainly lots of precedent for taking an old dissenting opinion and turning it into a majority opinion. Yep. So uh, we hope that Judge K will be vindicated when uh, this case is decided. Okay. Uh, the New York Court of Appeals tends to be fast after an oral argument, so we would expect a decision in that case sometime during the summer. Yeah. Very good news, uh, or very promising news at least. Um, We'll take another short break, and when we return, we'll update you on a 2014 story with news out of the Ninth Circuit where a three-judge panel revived a gay man's discrimination claim over an arrest made at San Diego Pride. We are back to update our listeners on a story we first told you about in 2014 regarding an arrest for public nudity at San Diego Pride in 2011. Will X. Walters uh, was wearing a gladiator-type black leather loincloth uh, with a G-string underneath. After gaining admission to a Pride event, he entered a beer garden where he had an initial confrontation with a police lieutenant who told him he needed to cover up. After Walters sort of had a series of interactions with him where words were made back and forth, the lieutenant met up with several other officers and told them about Walters' outfit. One of those officers then saw Walters when the wind was blowing, lifting up the back and exposing his butt. Another officer directed Walters to talk to him, but Walters refused to comply with this officer either. 
He was then arrested and physically escorted out of the beer garden and charged with violating San Diego's uh, public nudity ordinance. Walters at the time and continues to believe that the entire episode was not about enforcing this public nudity ordinance, but rather a conspiracy to discriminate against a gay man participating in a pride event. It's interesting that uh, he's alleging that one of the co-conspirators was, in fact, the people running the pride event. Uh, and, and this based on evidence that they had met with the police in advance of the event, and they said, we want a family-friendly event. We need to crack down on nudity, and the police agreed. So it, it could be uh, that, uh, that the reason they were applying a stricter standard at the Pride event was because the Pride event organizers asked them to. Yeah. So how does that constitute being anti-gay? You know, it's complicated. I think um, Pride is not maybe exactly what it used to be. I think it used to be a little... It's more commercial. Yes. So anyway, with this in mind, Walters filed a Section 1983 federal civil rights action uh, with seven claims against the city and and the police officers involved, as well as the Pride organizers, as you mentioned, most prominently alleging a violation of constitutional equal protection did not have much luck with a federal district court judge uh, named Kathy Ann Bensavango. She ruled in March 2014 that there was nothing in the record that reasonably suggests sexual orientation had anything to do with the decision to insist upon compliance with the literal text of the ordinance. She further noted that there was no evidence that the San Diego Pride officials entered into a conspiracy with the police or willfully sought to implement an unlawful policy of discriminatory and selective enforcement of San Diego's public nudity laws. She granted summary judgments to all defendants on all claims, and Walters then appealed to the Ninth Circuit. He waited just over two years for an oral argument date, and finally got it. And within a couple of weeks, uh, there was a three-judge unanimous opinion, unsigned, but all joined by all three, vindicated him. The unanimous Ninth Circuit panel was much more sympathetic to his theory of the case, and they repeatedly sort of rested on the standard civil procedure, procedure uh, language that all evidence must be viewed in the light most favorable to a plaintiff at the summary judgment stage. Right. So they're looking at his factual allegations yep. and they're saying, well, if his factual allegations are true, then we think there's a potential equal protection violation yep. here. Uh, so it was inappropriate for the trial judge to grant summary judgment she was really weighing the evidence, yeah. and you don't do that. Yeah. Uh, he should get his day in court. Yeah. Maybe he'll strike out. Maybe he won't be vindicated. Maybe it'll turn out that, in fact, uh, the enforcement of the ordinance against him was not inappropriate. But he presented evidence, and the court uh, focused in on this, that they were going around, the police were going around telling people to cover up. It wasn't just him. They uh, approached more than a dozen people, uh, and uh, – he pointed out, I guess he, he was going to offer photographs taken on the beach and stuff like that, that plenty of people were wearing a lot less than he was, mm-hmm. and the police were looking the other way. And he says they look in the other way other places. They're not looking the other way at Pride. Mm-hmm. And so there was some kind of agreement, it seems, between the Pride organizers and the police, or so he alleges, yeah. that they were going to take a tougher stance at Pride to make it more family-friendly. Yeah. And if he is vindicated on that, 
perhaps he's got an equal protection claim here yeah. uh, against the Pride organizers, too. It'll yeah. be interesting to see how this one unfolds on remand. So they did, as you said, they agree that there is a material tribal issue of fact as to whether there was uh, a discriminatory policy of selectively enforcing the city's new ordinance. Right. They also looked on, as far as the equal protection claim, as to whether there was a discriminatory effect and a purpose. Uh, and for, for discriminatory effect, they said, you know, there were 12... 15 other attendees who were warned to cover up but not arrested. Moreover, they said he was entitled to an inference that targeting Pride event attendees is tantamount to targeting gay individuals and individuals who support gay rights. They added that an officer called Walters a drama queen for further evidence of a discriminatory purpose. Now that's, I think that's very interesting because uh, you you read about this event, you read the the newspaper accounts Mm -hmm. and everything else, and you know... Calling him a drama queen may be accurate, Uh, and it it may just indicate that uh, there was a police officer who knew gay slang. (laughs) You you never know, but uh, it'll be interesting, as I said, to see how this one turns out. Uh, There's a sense in which uh, you might say it's a, a little bit on the frivolous side. But on the other hand, you know, Pride has traditionally been an event at which gay people can sort of be unbuttoned, Mm -hmm. literally more than unbuttoned in this case, and uh, sort of uh, celebrate, Mm -hmm. you know. And and so the idea of of some kind of crackdown and and turning Pride into something that you can bring your little kitties to, I'm not sure uh, whether the Pride organizers may have gone a bit overboard here. But ultimately, to make it an equal protection case... I'm not sure that there's a constitutional right to wear gladiator-type black leather loincloth in public, unless you're uh, you're you know doing a historical uh, sand and sand epic for HBO or something like that. Oh wow! Um, I've given it to him we'll, there. You know? But we'll find out now that it's back at the district court. Yes. All right. We will take our last short break, and when we return, return. We'll discuss a troubling ruling from the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals that seems to let a rapist off the hook if a victim is intoxicated. All right, we are back to wrap up with our Of Note segment for this edition. The Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals recently held that the forcible that forcible sodomy cannot occur when a victim is so intoxicated as to be completely unconscious at the time of the sexual act of oral copulation. Can you explain this, Art? Well, you know, I might say no. How can one explain this? Well, it seems that uh, the legislature's uh, carelessness in, uh, in legislating on this stuff is at fault here. Uh, maybe that's why it's designated an unpublished opinion. They're, they're sort of ashamed of it. Uh, but according to newspaper reports, and the court itself doesn't get into the uh, to the details. Uh, newspaper reports the case involved a 17-year-old boy who was accused of having oral sex with a 16-year-old girl after they were drinking and smoking marijuana at a local park. And uh, according to the newspaper reports, the girl had to be carried to the defendant's car and was unconscious when the defendant took her to her grandmother's house. Uh, Her alcohol level was found to be 0.341 after she was taken to the hospital. The defendant's DNA was found on the girl in a sexual assault exam. Uh, The defendant told police that the oral sex was consensual, that is, he didn't deny 
uh, oral sex. And if she was unconscious, I imagine the oral sex involved cunnilingus. Uh, well, the girl told police she didn't remember anything that happened after being in the park. Uh, based on that, the Court of Criminal Appeals said, well, he can't be convicted. I mean, she provided no evidence. She couldn't remember anything. Uh, there was, I guess, DNA evidence uh, that uh, he had uh, done something. But as to whether it was consensual or not, he claimed it was consensual. That was the only evidence there. Uh, they said that the legislature's inclusion of an intoxication circumstance for the crime of rape is not found in the five very specific requirements for commission of the crime of forcible sodomy. And so as a technical matter of interpretation, the Court of Criminal Appeals said, you can't prosecute this guy. Well, that's sort of odd. Uh, and uh, as, as I suggested in, in my little note on this in Law Notes, uh, the uh, Tulsa County Assistant DA reacted to the court's decision by saying the ruling left him, quote, completely gobsmacked, which I characterized as a term of legal art in Oklahoma. <laughs> Uh, and, and that perhaps he imagines this will lead to a new practice in Oklahoma of getting people so drunk that they pass out and then sodomizing them with impunity. Well, I, I have a feeling the legislature is going to correct this one. With all the um, – I mean it's even more shocking with all the you know Bill Cosby stuff that's been in the news yeah. about things that he did that were similar, you know, drugging people. To, well, these straight teenagers we know, you know, they get out of control. So hopefully the legislature there will fix this because I – I doubt this was their intention when they were drafting the criminal law there. Probably not. All right. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can also be found online at iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please take a moment to give us lots of stars there if you like the podcast. Follow the gal on Twitter at LGBT Bar NY or like us on Facebook. Thanks again, and we will see you in June.